Yeah, so if you guys are ready, I'll start uh, recording episode 163. I'll just get ready with the intro here. Do you guys, do you guys see that? Somebody at the window? Do you get the feeling somebody's watching you? Do you want me to close the blind? No, no I, I just... There's this funny guy being poking around. Um, Seriously? Yeah, I just, just hang on a sec. Suburban Eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. Despite the reputation of their homeland, some are remarkably thin-skinned. Some seem to have multiple lifespans. A few were once thought to be extinct in the region. Others have been observed being sacrificed by their own. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. You know, it sounds... It sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, dear listener. Welcome, fellow meerkats, as we just sit up on the hill, get a good vantage point of what's going on in the world, shout out warnings to each other, quick, run, hide. <laughs> the Catholics are coming, the Catholics are coming. <laughs> Catholics and other dangerous elements are out there. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast, episode 163, 4th of September 2018. I am Trevor, the Iron Fist, with me, as always, Scott, the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, listeners. And tonight, I'm drinking a Stone and Wood Green Coast. It's not quite as good as the as the Pacific Ale that we had last week, but it is quite good, though. It's not bad. And Paul, the 12th man, is with us as well. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Scott. G'day, listeners. Um, I'm not going to talk about uh, whatever sponsorships we might yeah. be chasing here. Yeah. The beer sponsorship Let's... is still open <laughs> and available. If you, want, if you want your beer openly promoted on this program, all you've got to do is deliver a free carton each week. Mm. Wow. Hey, this is my second podcast of the week. Mm. I, was, I was a guest on a podcast uh, Monday morning, dear listener, which has been released. Uh, Cam Riley's got... A thousand and one different podcasts, and his sort of news and current affairs one is the bullshit filter. So, if you want to hear more of me, I'm on that one. Scott, you managed to hear some of it. I'd listened to it today when I was riding home, and I thought to myself, "You handled yourself rather well." And you did actually. Um, I couldn't tell whether or not you're being facetious or not with the whole question of the Joe Tan. Was it the uh, the guy that owns Jack Ali Ma? Jack Ma, yeah. Uh, Give the background. So Jack Ma had come out with a statement saying that America has spent too much money on wars and not enough on infrastructure. Yeah, and and you had to take a you took a, a different point of view to Cameron. Yes, and you said that uh, well, you know, if you compare the percentages and that sort of thing, the US is not that far ahead of the pack. Mm. Ultimately, as a percentage of GDP, mm. the US. Sure, it spends more than the others, but not that much more. No, really... it spends 3% of its GDP on military. Mm. And which... the NATO partners are supposed to spend too. Two, yeah. And 
you know, a few other reasons I gave and the fact that basically you could argue the reason they don't have infrastructure is they just don't have enough tax exactly. in the first yeah. place. So I was determined to take the opposite view just to play devil's advocate for mm. fun. But as I started reading it, I was beginning to convince myself. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, have you ever actually, thought of going into politics? <laughs> I actually thought you handled yourself very well on that. I thought to myself, Jesus, I wonder if he's telling the truth there, whether, was, whether, was, yeah, whether you yeah. took by, the um, well, position. By, by the end of it, I think I had persuaded myself. So I hadn't persuaded uh, Cam or Ray, but in any event, you know. No, I don't think you're ever going to. I don't think you're ever going to persuade Cam. Um, he seems to be, you know, hi Cam, if you're listening. Mm. He seems to be very anti-American. So yeah, well, that's there's my challenge. Maybe I'll be back on one day, and I will actually convince him to change his mind on something. So yeah. there's there's the challenge. So anyway, if you want to hear more of me, dear listener, have a listen to uh, Cam and Ray's the bullshit filter, but. Massive language warning. Yes. (laughs) One of of our other listeners, uh, Selena, I think, um, listened to some of it and was quite shocked, I think, by by the language and the tone of humour and it's blue, that's for sure. So... Yes, yeah, you, 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 you've just got to you've got to put on a language filter when you listen to Cam. Yeah, yeah for sure. So yeah. it's not the it's, so it's not it, it's not people so sensitive to language. Surely they go there for the content, for the ideas. Don't yeah, they? they're used to a very civilized, highbrow discussion yeah. from, from us. That's the problem. We've set a standard. That, <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> oh, and we always give a language warning when we're about to swear. So. <laughs> we, we try to. Mm. Yeah, it's, and language warning, dear listener, Scott Morrison is our prime minister. <laughs> And we're on high alert for language warning because of that. So, so yeah. So, anyway, uh, if you're listening for the first time, we look at news and politics and things going on in the world, uh, often with a very Australian focus. But uh, we've had a lot of Australian focus lately and we're trying to move away from it. But, uh, anyway, news and politics, culture, why things are happening in our society, and that's what we'll do um, on this podcast. So sit back and and have a listen. So... The first thing I wanted to talk about was about our Prime Minister and there was a sort of a, uh, a, a, a parody routine by a group who, who were basically... They had actually performed for the Hillsong-style churches that Scott Morrison attends and they wrote a bit of a, a song poking fun at Scott Morrison really quite reminiscent of the things that we were saying last week. Remember how we read his maiden speech mm-hmm. about he's got all these Christian ideals about, you know, treating everybody equally and human kindness, yet at the same time puts then out a video. video of him, you know, addressing the prisoners on Manus Island. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So really saying how two-faced uh, he is in that regard. So the song was quite, you know, poking fun at that and, and making that point. And there was quite a big uproar about it. Did you guys hear the song at all? Did you hear it? Did you hear I it? did hear it, I, yeah. You did? For those who didn't hear it, I've got a little bit of a clip here, so I'll just uh, I'll, I'll play a little bit of it here. Guys, since Scott Morrison became Prime Minister, heaps of people have been talking about his evangelical faith. Yeah, and if you don't know what that means, we're here to explain. It means ScoMo is heaps Christian. Scott Morrison could not be more yeah. Christian, right? Every act he does is so Christian. Two, three, four. Jesus, Jesus made, made the animals, animals like kangaroos, kangaroos, and he also said to lock the kids up on the roof. I am Jesus' son. And I'm Jesus' daughter, and there's nothing more Christian. 
love Jesus, 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 but not refugees. If you want to win votes, then you've got to stop votes. To do what pleases Jesus, deny them all visas, and you can't get more Christian than that. I like that. Jesus, Jesus, but not refugees. Yeah. There's some good lines in there. It deteriorated after the first verse. But uh, anyway, uh, lots of people saying, how dare they poke fun at our Prime Minister and his religious beliefs? This really? is a free country. You can't be yeah. you can't be poking fun at people for their religion. How, poke how, fun how, at everybody for any reason. Mm, exactly. We? That's one of the things that I... One of the tweets I read saying, you know, have you no respect or something like that. You but know, what about sure. all the... What about all the political cartoons that we've we've been enjoying for literally decades? I mm. mean, Australia has a good, solid tradition of political cartoons, and they don't, draw, you know, pull any punches in them, do they? Let's face it. Mm. We've seen, you know, prime ministers and senior government ministers uh, portrayed in very unflattering uh, manners at times, and you know, that's that's a very good thing, I think. In Scott Morrison's defence, he wasn't really complaining so much. He was just said the ABC are a bunch of numpkins or something like that. Yeah. But he wasn't really complaining about the criticism. But, but plenty of others were. You forgot so. the language warning, Trevor. Uh, numpkins. numpkins, yeah. <laughs> Apparently one of his favourite insults is to call people Muppets. So this oh, is a variation of that. God. So um, anyway, yes, people up in arms. And I'll just quote a little bit from this news article. Many saw a conflict in this, with Human Rights Law Centre Director of Campaigns, Tom Clark, tweeting, Fascinating how politicians can be so selective as to when their Christianity informs their decisions. Happy to evoke Bible when refusing to vote for marriage equality, yet teachings of Jesus seemingly irrelevant when denying medical care to refugee kids. Good point. That was a very good point, yeah. Mm. Really did. The hypocrisy of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, Don't expect a response from ScoMo on that one. No, of course no, not. No. Scott, you found an article about gay conversion therapy? I did, yes. Mm. And I forwarded that to you both, the Savo. Um, that was a very interesting article. I read it all in its entirety this morning. I didn't print it out. But um, it was from a group of Christians who are from the LGBT community. And they were asking Scott Morrison and Bill Shorten to go on a bipartisan unity ticket to end gay conversion therapy. Gay conversion therapy takes all sorts of forms. It can be prayer, counselling, and right through to shock treatment and that sort of stuff to try and beat the gay out of someone. Mm. It doesn't work. <laughs> you know, I'm speaking from experience. No, here. I'm not speaking from experience. I think if my parents had a vitamin had to put me into it, they would have done. But anyway, they didn't. Um, they it, it doesn't it, it it doesn't work. You know, it's been used in the United States and that sort of stuff fairly frequently down in the Mormon areas, which is in Utah and those sorts mm-hmm. of places. That's where they really that's where it really got a, a hold on. Anyway, it doesn't work. And there are survivors of it and that sort of thing who are behind this move and they are asking both ScoMo and Shorten to go on a unity ticket to outlaw it. Mm. So good luck with that. But um, he presented a hell of a lot of signatures. I think it was 50,000, wasn't it? 43,000 petition signatures. Now, remember, somebody, one of our listeners, pointed out previously there's only 50,000 Liberal Party members. Mm. If all of those petitioners... 
and another handful joined, joined the, the Liberal, Liberal Party, Party and yeah. changed the policy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's exactly right. If we can it's get it, if we forty three thousand prepared to sign a petition, just yeah. join up a political party, and you'll get somewhere with forty three thousand. Hmm. Secular party, reason party, couldn't rustle up forty three thousand avocados, let alone votes. You know, no. like it's just it's amazing. That's hmm. a good strong number. Absolutely, so, it is, yeah. That, you, you know, there's. Anyway, we've we've mentioned that before. So that, well, that's, that's an what I one. think is probably a good thing that maybe I could actually save my membership of the Liberal Party, ladies and gentlemen, gay ladies and gentlemen out there. If you want to join the Liberal Party, let's go and stack it. Yeah. <laughs> it's too late. But you, you said uh, before we started that some news came out mm. about uh, the last straw in terms of possibly yeah. voting for the Liberal Party. This is the last straw that um, it, it was the last straw that broke the camel's back. Actually, it was. Uh, there was a report on news radio when I was over when I was driving over to pick up Paul, and they said that um, that in the dying days of the Turnbull administration, he was negotiating with the Catholic Education Office or whatever it is to apparently do a special deal with them, refunding, and they're going to be funding them to the tune of four billion dollars over the next ten years, four hundred million dollars per annum, ladies and gentlemen has just been pissed up against the wall, pardon Mm. the language, Mm. you know. That money should have gone through to the state education schools so that they could have really beefed up the education that was offered in the public school system. But anyway... So the Catholics win either way, you know, Labor or Liberal. They're going to win, win. yeah. Well, what did you say? You said they're survivors or something like that. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that was just on a that was just a report that I heard on the way over here tonight. We'll have to wait and see whether or not it comes to fruition. But uh, mm. I wouldn't be surprised because Simon Birmingham's lost the education portfolio. Uh, he's in trade now, I believe, and I don't know who the education minister is now. But I wouldn't be surprised if he was. A Wasn't it Tian? Yes, think. couldn't tell you. Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, and I'm sure he's more sympathetic to the religious cause <laughs> than Birmingham. Likely. Yeah, well, no, Birmingham no. was actually educated in a public school. Mm. And he doesn't believe in God or anything like that. So, you know, he mm. was a very rational person that you'd want in the cabinet, but mm. no. Mm. Anyway. I went to a Reason Party meeting. Yes, on, on, Monday, on Friday, Friday night. Friday night, yes. How was it? My wife was away. It was coming back late that night, so I had to go to the airport late. So I had a chance to go to the meeting and then go to the airport. So, look, uh, they're obviously really good people, very decent, and they're... It's really just like going to a secular party meeting in many respects. In fact, there was a quite a number of ex, well, ex or current secular party people there. So a good group of people, um, but still no um, plan that I could see in terms of actually getting traction or, or notice in the media, and that is just the big problem. They will, uh, unfortunately, run the risk of being completely unseen when it comes to the next election and well, we'll burn up a lot of energy. Well, I, I hope Fia- they prove me wrong. Fiona Patton certainly, you know, because she was at that meeting that we were at once in she, Paul, and she mm. has a very good presence. She yeah. certainly had control of the room. She commanded everyone's respect and that sort of thing. She was a very, very powerful presence. Well, she was a special guest. So. Absolutely, yes, mm. I know that. But she was um, – I was really quite impressed by her. Mm. And um, she's re- just recent, recently released a book, Sex 
law, uh, sex something and electoral rolls. Sex, yeah. drugs and electoral rolls. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. So that, that book's probably something I should buy and read and that sort of thing. Um, you know, we'll have to wait mm. and see. But I, you know, there was a friend of the show, Anne, she was on an email with us at some stage when she said that uh, she would consider joining them and that type of thing if she felt that they could get the traction and that type of thing. Mm. That's going to be their real difficulty is whether or not they can get the traction, mm. you know. We'll have to wait and see. Mm. Mm. They're talking about an arrangement with the Pirate Party and the Science Party and the other secular party and other micro parties where they pool their resources and and rather than all of those parties running a candidate in every state, they'll sort of pick and choose where there's strong candidates and help each other out if they don't have a candidate running. So... Whether that works or not, I don't know how much... You know, probably their policies don't really conflict that much and it was more the case that at times they didn't have policies. Mm. And there's a guy there from the Pirate Party and he... One issue came up about... He said, oh, yeah, well, we don't have a, a policy on Aboriginal affairs. He said, because we don't have any Aboriginal members, so we can't make a policy on Aboriginal affairs. Why? Because the history of white people making laws for black people was not good and therefore they oh shouldn't dear. attempt it. Oh, dear. So, yeah. so there that we go. No that was, yeah. Well, in that case, men shouldn't be like making <laughs> laws that affect women. Is it like that, is it? Or vice versa? Yeah, that's yeah. So, well, there's probably a reasonable argument to that because you wouldn't have abortion laws and that sort of stuff if you, yeah. Anyway, Anne was at the meeting as yeah. well, and we rolled our eyes simultaneously at that one. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that was the good part about the secular if party. I'd the been secular there, party there was would have been at least three of us rolling our. Eyes. Secular party was at least hard nosed on those things and could say, "No, we're going to make a policy on this. Yeah. We don't care. Absolutely. We'll just make one." Yeah. So, and well, the idea will. A f- flourish or, or not on its merit, and it's not as to who put it up. It's what is the idea itself. So, um, yeah. But as I was there, I was thinking they're obviously needing assistance, and I remember, dear listener, you may not be aware, but both Scott and I were members of the Secular Party, and we're not anymore. But in fact, we stood in the Senate for mm. uh, for the Secular Party in the last election, and I can remember at the polling booths that there was a lot of get-up people there. Yeah. And I didn't really know much about get-up. And I, I said to one of the people, who are you? What, what are you? I, what, what's get-up? And she said to me, or he, I can't even remember, but basically, well, we just pick an issue of the election and that's the one that we will campaign on and be active on. So it might be the Barrier Reef and this election, it might be um, marriage equality on another one and it's sort of up to the members of Get Up to decide from time to time what their thing will be for each election. And I said, so you join Get Up, but you're never really sure what the actual issue will be at the next election. It will just be determined between now and then. And they said, that's right, we'll just be deciding. And I thought that was amazing that they they've got thousands of people. Obviously, a large organisation, Get Up, and it just. Uh, I, I was just amazed that they could get the numbers that they get for policies that are really obviously leftish 
but are only... But they have, they have money. They have resources. They do. Well, they to promote do, they, themselves. But, but that they, comes from minor donations. Exactly. So that, that's the other sure? incredible thing, yes. All of it? Yes. The, the, the vast majority of their money comes from regular small donations. So mm-hmm. that's the other incredible, even more incredible part, is their ability to get money. So, I, I, yeah, I, if you'd have told me the, the scheme of GetUp and it's, how it's going to operate, I would have said, well, that's never going to work, but it clearly is. It does work, you know. I mean, I used to receive their God. I forget what what campaign they did that offended they me. Used to campaign against uh, tobacco advertising and things, didn't they? Use Absolutely, that? yeah. They, that's yeah. where they started out was basically on those sorts of issues. Then they got really heavily involved in the mining tax issue and that sort of thing. And prior to that, it was the gay marriage issue, and. At different times, they've selected different electorates where there's a, a very conservative yeah. uh, person in power sitting and, and they really pour in lots of people mm. to try and oust rusted-in conservatives and they've had some success. Well, Dutton's so, apparently in their crosshairs. Yes. So it's basically a left, left-leaning left organisation, isn't it? My yes. understanding is it was yeah. started off by um, members of the ALP who wanted something that could campaign and that sort of stuff that was outside of the ALP so that they could distance themselves if they said something too outrageous. Well, apparently it was founded by Jeremy Hymans, David Madden, Amanda Tattersall and funding provided by George Soros. Mm. Um, I've heard that name somewhere before, haven't you? George Soros? In connection with? In connection with lots lots and lots of money. Yes, so where we were saying earlier, lots of small donations, but they—I think their ongoing sort of budget comes from lots of small donations. So anyway, the Turnbull government hates them because they promote left issues, and that favours the Greens and Labor, and they're trying to change the rules so that it's harder for get up to get money, making it you know declarations more onerous and making them align with either the Greens or the Labor Party, which will then, they won't be as so, um, how would you say, neutral appearing. So they won't be as attractive to people. So anyway, we'll see what happens with that. But, yeah, uh, get up. So It's the Morrison government too, by the way, not the Turnbull government anymore. <laughs> yes, Turnbull <laughs> government hated them, and now the Morrison government will. So that'll be one thing they have in common. <laughs> yeah. Gentlemen, uh, how are your cartooning skills? Your, your, your drawing skills? Pretty ordinary, but, uh, you know, I, I'd there's, be willing to... Because there was a competition. Tidy them up for a good cause, wouldn't yeah, you? You'd like to win $10,000? No, I'd just like to poke fun at Muhammad. Mm. <laughs> oh, I, in that case, I've got just the competition for you. So, uh, in the Netherlands, uh, Gert Wielders the anti-Islam MP decided to run a competition, uh, a cartoon competition, calling for people to make cartoons up, uh, making fun of Muhammad. A very provocative move. And, uh, of course, lots of Islamic people, or Muslim people, not happy about that. And in particular in Pakistan, they weren't happy. So in Pakistan... Thousands of Islamists set off on a protest march to demand that Imran Khan's new government sever diplomatic ties with the Netherlands over blasphemous 
over the Blasphemous cartoon competition. So they had a a party, a, a march organised by a party, one of whom's policy is, um, uh, well, it's a party that's dedicated to the punishment of blasphemy. It's a pretty specific party platform, but um, yeah. And in the end, the Gert Wielders decided that the danger to other people, not just himself, was so great that he actually cancelled the competition. Mm. So it's too late now. If you're, oh. you have to rip up that cartoon, Twelfth Man. But it reminds me of another uh, source of, you know, one of our old sources of humour, which was the Monty Python group. And you know what they used to say: we didn't ask for an, for the Inquisition. You know, I mean, it's it's like the Inquisition has returned to haunt us, isn't it? That we can't have fun about that one specific religious identity for fear that we might be tortured and murdered. Well, and we can't have fun at Scott Morrison's religion either. They're just taking the fun out of the world, these guys. (laughs) They've got no sense of humour. I don't think the the coalition is going to put out a warrant for our arrest or, or, you know try to harm us physically correct for making fun of his religion correct but one would hope not it's it's not a stretch to suggest that legally people could be in trouble down the track at the right things are going for that is not a stretch for poking fun at religious belief yes yep could be considered to have breached uh Section 18C or something similar if they slip a religious belief into that section we've yet to get the Outcome of that inquiry into yeah. religious freedom, and it's, who knows what that might contain. It's, it's sitting on Scott Morrison's desk right now. The Ruddock inquiry. It makes me wonder whether or not they haven't released it because it actually says, "Well, the religious types have all just got their knickers in a twist. There's no problem." No, I don't think that. I don't think that's the case. It's a possibility, though. Oh, do you want to pack? Put a six no, pack I'm on not that one. Put a six pack on right. it because it could lose. Right. But you know, it's a, it's a possibility though that maybe that they've they've already said that well, there's no problem with it, so just don't worry about it. Mm. In which case, you know, how's how's Morrison going to keep the right wing under control with that? Oh, that remains to be seen. That should be really at some stage soon. That should come out. Absolutely, we'll see. I think it's overdue. Mm. The one thing that did worry me from this article was this final few lines on the first page. On Monday, Pakistan's Senate passed a resolution condemning the competition, and Khan, being the new Prime Minister, Imran, is it? Mm. Yeah, he's the used to be the cricketer. cricketer. Yeah. Khan vowed to take the issue up at the UN General Assembly in September. He said, Islamic countries should cooperate to create laws against blasphemy similar to those against Holocaust denial in European countries. Mm-hmm. Now, that should send a chill down everyone's spine if they do actually get the UN on side and they do actually insert it into UN human rights conventions or something like that saying you've got to have blasphemy laws. That should concern all of us. Absolutely. It's really ridiculous that they would even consider that. Mm. I've long thought the Europeans were extremely unwise with these these laws uh, concerning Holocaust denial. Absolutely. Extremely mm. stupid uh, legal move on their part. I mean, mm. they've locked up a few crank historians... What else has it achieved? Well, were, uh, Irving was locked Nothing. up, wasn't it? Yeah, Irving, Irving was, was locked up and probably one or two others. Yeah. 
But it's achieved nothing, really. It achieves nothing. Because let's face it, you know, you've got a few cranks that actually come out and say the Holocaust didn't happen. Yeah. And everyone else says, no, you don't know what you're talking about. No, because everybody else is sufficiently well educated that they know it's a historical fact. So these cranks can say what they like. It doesn't really change people's opinion of the issue. Mm. So to have laws to put a few cranks in jail is is just asking for further extensions of such laws uh, at the behest of these sorts of people. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's that was the only that was the real worry in that whole arg- in the mm. whole article was when Imran Khan said that because mm. I thought Khan was actually quite reasonable. Apparently not. No, apparently not. Yeah. Anyway, when I gave my categorization of Muslims, yes. Muslim light, social Muslims, by the book Muslim and killing is okay, yeah, Muslims. As you're reading it, you're going, those third and fourth ones, they're the real extreme nutbags. There's not that many of them, is there? But when you're reading that sort of article and the thousands of people on the streets and you know, a, the leader of the country approaching the UN, mm. you realise that there are lots and lots and this is the problem. So, And according to the Pew Research Survey a couple of years ago, there would be, and there would be several hundred million that we would consider fairly in the th- hardline yes. Islamists. Yes. Several hundred million. Yes, in the by the book or yes. the killing can at be least, okay in category. At least a few hundred million. Mm. That's not an insignificant number. Mm. Still on the score of categorising people, it's got yes. a, I will never forgive you for calling my <laughs> actions reprehensible. Yeah, well, one of these but, days you'll have to forgive and forget, but, won't you? <laughs> not, not while I get the chance to have a good dig at you every now and again. So you sent me an article about Pew Research yes. or something, and we'll get to that. But I found a different article from Pew Research. So you, obviously you like the Pew Research Centre. You think they're good? I do think they're good. Now you're going to categorise they're, them. They're not yeah. reprehensible? <laughs> they're not reprehensible. So are they going to come out with a by-the-book Muslim, a no. Muslim light? <laughs> Well, no, they've come out with a religious typology where they have looked at the American public and uh, oh, yes. rather than looking at out. the particular yes. denominations of, of religious people in America, they've looked at the strength of their belief. So you could be Muslim or you could be Christian and you could fall into one, the same category that they've provided because it's really looking at, at the strength of your belief. So... I'll quote a little bit here. A new Pew Research Centre analysis looks at beliefs and behaviours that cut across many denominations, important traits that unite people of different faiths or that divide people who have the same religious affiliation. So they've produced a new and revealing classification or typology of religion in America. (laughs) Perhaps if I'd used the word typology, (laughs) I might have got away with it, Scott. (laughs) Uh, it's still classification, anyway. <laughs> anyway, whereas I had four categories uh, of Muslims, they've got seven typologies of religious belief. So, uh, starting at the, we'll start at the least religious. So they've got the solidly secular, hold virtually no religious beliefs, and re- reject New Age beliefs, and they've got religious resistors. Most think organised religion does more harm than good, politically liberal and democratic. So those two groups amount to 29% of the US population, they reckon. Then they've got a somewhat religious 
sort of middle ground, which includes the spiritually awake and the relaxed religious. I like that, relaxed religious. Uh, they make up 32%. And then there's the, uh, the more serious ones, the highly religious make up 39%. And that includes the diversely devout, the God and country believers and the Sunday stalwarts. And each of those has got a description. So uh, basically they've divided the country up a third, a third, a third between non-religious, somewhat religious and highly religious and some subcategories there. But I think we need to think about religious people in there's a spectrum that um, people could fall into and just using the categories of Christian or Muslim uh, really isn't an accurate descriptor in most cases. You need something else. No, I think you're right. I mean, you, I think you've. I think what the Pew Research Centre did was they broke all religions down into what you actually behave and that sort of thing. Mm, yes. What you were doing was just isolating a particular group called the Muslims. <laughs> and, and, and what they believe. Exactly. So, I think if you've got, you know, I, I, I don't know what to do with Fraser Ending's speech because, you know, the hard heart in me and that sort of stuff actually somewhat agreed with him on banning Muslims, but... Um, <laughs> well, you see, that sounds terrible. I know, but it does sound terrible. banning a by-the-book Muslim or exactly. a killing a BOK Muslim... Exactly. We understand that's fine. And that's why I think you'd have to do is you'd have to look at every... Mm. Oh, I won't offend Paul by calling it faith, but every superstition that you've got out there and trying to categorise those parts of the superstitions. And, you know, you've even got Buddhists who kill Muslims and that sort of stuff from mm. Myanmar... So I think you've got to look at every religion and you've got to say to you, well, you know, uh, when is killing okay? Is blasphemy okay? That sort of thing. And then if, if any of them answer, well, yes, you can kill if you need to, or no, blasphemy is not okay, then you can say, well, we don't want you here. <laughs> hmm. So the one that you sent was in relation to a Pew Research study of social hostilities involving religion. Yes, and, and apparently what, we're more hostile than we were. We are more hostile than what we were. Uh, the government has apparently removed hostility towards religion. I didn't realise we had any government hostility towards religion, but apparently we did. Um, and what really pricked my interest was the reference to Sweden, Germany, Denmark and those sorts of countries. Apparently they've all experienced a quite a big surge in religious problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering whether or not that was a response to the migrant crisis and that sort of thing. don't know, but it's an index that measures acts of religious hostility by private individuals, organisations or groups in society. So apparently we've got more of it than we did before. Exactly, mm. which really did surprise me that we had any sort of, I didn't think anyone would give a toss, but apparently they do. Mm. Any idea, any thoughts on what what has brought about this change? I couldn't tell you, um, unless of course it's I don't know. Maybe maybe there is anti Islam move, move, movements out there. There is you know, you've got those right wing nutters from the Australian Nationalists. We'll call them you know the guys that are out there and they they've all got their Southern Cross tattoos and their. Protesting outside of mosques. mosques. Yeah. I don't know whether or not that was counted, but it wouldn't surprise me. 
But, you know, you've also got that idiot that was deported back to New Zealand too that uh, had turned up to mosques oh, yeah. and protests there. There was, uh, there was a discussion on the drum this afternoon um, about distrust of the media, you know, and um, one woman would, made the point that in Germany a year or two ago when there was, there was a kind of a, you, you would recall, a disturbance in a public square in a city around, was it around New Year's or something like that? And there were large groups of migrant men who newly arrived in the country, who were reported to be molesting young yeah. German Yeah, you're talking about Cologne. That was yes, Cologne, Cologne, yeah. And she said as a result of the German press making a deliberate decision not to report the ethnic identity of the suspected perpetrators, she said for, for some time after that, German people basically stopped believing what was reported in the news in relation to sexual attacks because right. they just assumed it, it must be a, a migrant or, or a Muslim man because the German media just weren't telling them. So they just assumed that it was. Right. So she, the point she made, I think, was the way it's important for the media to be honest and open and upfront about the facts of a, of a situation uh, lest they totally lose the confidence of the reading public. Mm. I've had an article on our list which I haven't been able to get to for ages, but we're going to get to it now. And the title of it is The Demise of the Nation State. And And it ties in to to what that woman was saying. Yeah. It really does. The thrust of the article is that we're all moaning... We're all bemoaning our political leadership all around the world, that they're not doing what we think they should be doing. And uh, the article is saying that the world has changed and sovereign nations now no longer control money. So uh, the multinational corporations are easily able to shift money around the world. And as a result, because sovereign nations can't control the money, they've lost their power, they've lost control over their ability to actually affect change in many respects because they just don't have the money anymore. They don't have the power. So I thought it was a really, really good article. Yes, I thought it was very interesting too. And particularly if you if you consider the the current state of geopolitics with China rapidly emerging as the dominant power in our part of the world, the United States appearing to be in decline, at least of some sort. And the point you make is really valid because I, I suppose most of us assume that it's the big corporations that call the shots in the United States, whereas... In, and in Russia, it's, you know, it's the, the criminal clique that run the government over there and their, their gangster and business buddies. In China, it's the Communist Party of China that calls the shots and they have access to a lot of money and they, they also have laws that compel all Chinese companies to do what the party bids them do. Yes. So where does that leave the, the, the other players? Small players like Australia don't get a look in, but it certainly uh, is 
an ominous thing for our future, I have to say. And even if you look at the way Xi Jinping is operating, he's made himself, you know, uh, unfireable. He's now the supreme dictator of China. And he's militarily uh, showing very aggressive tendencies. And I would be willing to bet my house, if I had one, on Xi Jinping taking back Taiwan in the next 10 years and maybe even less. And it made me think. Now, if he was to achieve such a grand achievement in terms of uh, the way the Chinese communists look at history, wouldn't he be looking for a a, a good symbolic date uh, around which to rally the, you know, the communist faithful and the Chinese nation and celebrate the reunification, because they've already got Hong Kong and Macau. Mm-hmm. All they need to take back to complete the story is Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So I, I, looked, I looked up my Chinese history, and guess what? In 1921, the Communist Party of China was founded in Shanghai in September 1921. Right. That's three years away. Wouldn't that be a nice, year anniversary. a nice reason? for him to celebrate the 100 years anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party mm-hmm. by announcing to the world, Taiwan has rejoined the motherland. Mm. Well, it's a sovereign state that's still got its power, whereas the others are losing it. Exactly. So as a consequence, they have a big advantage. So what do you think? September t- 2021? Are we going there's, to see? There's your some, tip. It's an early tip. My tip. An early tip from it's an early tip from the twelfth man of of Chinese take retaking Taiwan. Well, I hope you're wrong. I hope I'm wrong too, because mm. I like the people of Taiwan. Mm. I like the people of China, for goodness' sake. They, you know, they're mm. just people. They're just you know people like people everywhere. They just mm. want to get on with life, but they're in the unfortunate position of being ruled by tyrants. Yeah, mm. I think that's it. I mean, you know. The Chinese government is something very different. It is a very different government. It's probably even worse than the old Soviet administration. It's certainly no better. And you know, did did you say they cashed up? Did you say you like Chinese? I like Chinese. I like Chinese. They only come up to your knees. Yet they're always friendly and they're ready to please. They couldn't get away with that stuff now. (laughs) No, I do like Chinese. Well, I just uh, don't like Chinese communists very much. So if you accept that uh, these corporations now don't hand over their money to sovereign states, and as a consequence, sovereign states have lost their power... Mm. Then the question is, well, what do we do? And change the taxation system. Good. So in this so article, they cannot escape, so that they cannot shift their resources offshore or just shuffle them around from country to country until yeah. the sovereign state governments give up. Yeah. So this is what Scott and I have been talking about for a long time: is some sort of. Well, you could turnover sales tax Ta- or turnover tax, sales tax, whatever you want to call it, where you yeah. levy tax on, on the on, on gross the transaction. income, yeah, gross income, not the net, the actual activity happening in the country, exactly. Yeah, so then 
Apple would pay tax on everything they sold in Australia and you would not have any tax deductions off it. You'd pay it on that gross income amount. So that would stop them setting up any sort of nonsense where they would shuffle stuff off to Singapore. Yep. Speaking of Apple, Hmm. 94% of Apple's cash reserves are held offshore. This $250 billion is greater than the combined foreign reserves of the British government and the Bank of England. <laughs> One of the reasons for that is, when was it about... Uh, 50, when, when did the gold price shoot up? Prior to the gold price shooting up, when it was around about $300 an ounce, the British Treasury decided to sell off a lot of their gold reserves for $300 an ounce. Guess who bought it? Who? The Chinese government. Chinese government. And the price went up to $1,200. I like Chinese. Sorry, couldn't help myself. (laughs) (laughs) So that's uh, issue number one. You've got to change the tax system because the way it's currently structured, it's just too easy to shift the money offshore. Absolutely. And the second one is... Uh, a more global, flexible democracy. And what this article is saying is that the uh, sovereign states losing their power. Um, a new local and transnational political... As new local and transnational political currents become more powerful, the nation-state's rigid monopoly on political life is becoming increasingly unviable. Nations must be nested in a stack of other stable democratic structures, some smaller, some larger than they, so that the turmoil at the national level does not lead to total breakdown. The EU is the major experiment in this direction. I think that's right. I think sovereign states are going to have to coalesce with other sovereign states of a like mind and group together and gain some power and traction um, that they just don't have on their own. So through multilateral agreements of some sort, like the EU, uh, the, the nation state really it, it can't exist in 100, 200 years. It, we, we're going to have to. So where's the EU going to end up? Is that going to end up the United States of Europe, is it? Yeah. Yeah, so there'll be a central government in in Belgium because it's just they don't these nation states of that size don't make sense anymore. No, in today's age, yeah. Oh, I tend to agree with you. I mean, it's um <clears throat> one of those things. It's uh, mm. yeah. the third one is the third thing that this author says is that we need to find new conceptions of citizenship. Citizenship is itself the primordial kind of injustice in the world. It functions as an extreme form of inherited property. And like other systems in which inherited privilege is overwhelmingly determinant, it arouses little allegiance in those who inherit nothing. So there are, there's going to have to be some changes to the idea of sovereign nations and citizenship. And deregulating human movement is an essential corollary of the deregulation of capital. It is unjust to preserve the freedom to move capital out of a place and simultaneously forbid people from following. So, see, at the moment, we are saying to people, we can only take so many because we've built up systems here and 
social security systems in particular that require enormous levels of cooperation, assimilation, integration. And, and redistribution of yes, resources. Yeah. If we and redistribute too much, it, it all falls down, doesn't it? It does. But if you have conglomerations, uh, for example, in the EU, where they have free movement of people, your citizenship of... Italy becomes irrelevant, really. You're a citizen of the EU and you just go wherever. So it's a breaking down of that citizenship idea. So Does that's that, part and parcel of it. Doesn't that create its own set of problems where the population sort of moves quite freely from one part of the collection of states to whatever part happens to be offering the best deal? Yes, and that would leave other states out in the cold, but, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, but I guess these are stepping stones to a more homogenous government system. I'm not sure what that means. Well, you know, meaning I can understand stepping Trevor... stones to these countries disappearing and just oh. having the EU government. Yeah, I can understand mm. where Trevor's headed with this. It's a very frightening thing for us to put our heads around because we don't have a natural group of countries in our region that we would want to be part of. The closest we can probably even consider joining would be ASEAN. That's assuming that they're going to have us, which they probably won't. And we would want to join them. Well, that's the whole point. If, if, the, Euro, if, Europe, if the EU is the first move of a transnational agreement and then the next one's probably NAFTA where the North American Free Trade Agreement will take over the North American part of the world, then we're going to be stuck down here in this part of the world. We're going to have to join up with someone. Ultimately, though, you may not need to be geographically close to your new economic partners. Mm. I we mean, could telecommute to our in, partners. In, indeed. I mean, we could strike up a relationship with Iceland for example, or you know, yeah. and although in terms we of collective to, security, that would be a bit but, meaningless. But in terms of agreement of you know free movement of of citizens between the countries and things, you know, you don't necessarily have yeah, to be. See, that's true. I mean, like you know, if if Britain post Brexit and that sort of stuff wants to do something with the yep. former British Commonwealth, yep. that would probably be something that we could actually get involved in. Yep. You know, we got the Commonwealth of Nations could become a single trading block. Anyway, all food for thought. It's an interesting idea that the sovereign nation has really lost its ability to to change things because it no longer controls the money. Absolutely. I have to say for quite a long time I've been very disappointed that our government has basically sat on its hands and failed to promote the liberal democratic model to other countries. Well, I mean, we've been busy blowing them up. <laughs> no, I don't think that's true. But, you know, we, ha- we have the case of uh, journalists being jailed just in the last few days in both Myanmar mm. and Cambodia. Mm. And uh, the, in Cambodia, in the Cambodian case, it's an Australian man who's yes. been jailed for six years. Mm. He's already been in jail for something like 14 months. Mm. And apparently the charges are totally trumped up case of spying. That's clearly and people have been asking, what is the Australian government doing now? I Mm. dare say that behind the scenes they're probably um, making sounds, but uh, you know, Peter Gresty, 
you know, Grester, yeah. Grester was was on the drum this afternoon, and he was saying, you know, he'd like to see our governments doing more to stand up for the principle of um, journalistic freedom, and I find myself agreeing with him on that. The problem it's, is that this whole honour culture. Like, if you come out and and in the media or openly start criticising foreign governments for what they've done, they'll get their back up and make it even less likely to to do what you want. So, Possibly. Yeah, but he if, made the yeah. point that in, in his case, when he was imprisoned in Egypt, he said the Australian government had virtually no leverage over the Egyptian government because Australia has so little interest in Egypt and they have so little interest in us. Mm that they had very little to go on, whereas in the Cambodian case, the Australian government's gifted them, what was it, 40 or $50 million to take half a dozen refugees. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, I mean... Well, did you see Four Corners a few weeks ago on the whole Cambodian situation? Oh, it's an appalling it's an It's an appalling mess, yeah. you know. It's uh, it's a dictatorship. It is a dictatorship now. And that's, yeah. they, they, were, um, they were talking to Gareth Evans at the time and he said that Hun Sen lost the first election but he put such a dummy spit up that he had to become the joint prime minister. Mm. That's where they figured that the whole thing fell apart, was had he not been given the joint prime ministership then everything would have been okay. It's also become a client state of China. Now. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. It's a really is a client state of China. Mm. Mm. Hey, we got a new review on iTunes. Well, it's an updated review. This is good. This is from Kenner, 161975, titled Still Gold. And he's gone, had to update the review as I've been a listener and supporter for a while now. The podcast just keeps getting better, along with the interesting subject matter the guys are really finding a groove, or maybe I'm just getting to know them better. It's funny, thought-provoking, not afraid of controversy, and genuinely interested in making a positive change. What more could you want? Keep up the great work, guys. Thank you very much. What an excellent synopsis of the program. Yeah, good on you, Kenner, 161975. Much appreciated. Ah, yes. Hey, I think... Let me just see. Um, no, that's not on that. Um, bear with me, sorry. Um, we can always edit this out. Yeah, we can edit that out, <laughs> but we might just let it go anyway. Um, I think that guy is... Um, that guy's back at the window. Just hang on. I think he's saying something. Scientists have recently discovered that expat tribe members, listening to their musings from both far and wide, have been contributing to the group's well-being and habitat infrastructure through something called Patreon. Some for as little as one dollar a podcast. It really is making a difference, and it's been observed to enrich the tribe as a whole, with contributing members experiencing measured dopamine spikes when new episodes are released, and even intermittent bouts of persistent smiling while listening. Ah, there seems to be movement again. If we listen carefully, we may be able to make out the discussion once more. Dear listener, wouldn't you just love a good old-fashioned dopamine spike right now? (laughs) I know I would. There's currently about 32 people enjoying that dopamine spike, and they 
And the one who enjoys the biggest spike of all is Sean, who was there from the very beginning, <laughs> the longest, the most generous. Sean, you, you've gotten so much dopamine, it's probably illegal. <laughs> Don't drive or control heavy vehicles during this podcast, Sean. Thanks, mate, as always. Thank you as well to Alex Janelle, Craig John. Uh, now, let me get this one right. It is um, Jar Stingers Platcom. <laughs> Grant Wayne Oyame, Brett the Beneficiary, Alison Steve, Tony Caitlin, Craig, Jimmy Watley, Jimmy Spud, Kane Bronwyn, um, Matt J, Robert Dean, Rod Palais, Maddock Man, and two new um, two new patrons from this week, Warren and today Dominic. Good on you guys, much appreciated. Thank you to the two cans as well who chip in. As well. Thank so, you very much for yeah. contributing. We really do appreciate yes. it. So here's how it works, dear listener. You know, we don't bang on about this every week. So, you know, once every month or something like that, if you're listening to this program and you're really enjoying it and you've listened to, say, maybe 20 episodes and every time it pops up in your podcast app, you think, beauty, can't wait to listen to the boys. If you're in that category, then... Time to stump up. <laughs> if you're not, if you're sort of, I oh, can't be bothered, can't be fagged, or, you know, I'll check out what they're talking about before I decide, well, you're in the maybe category. But if you're in the first category where you're really into it, then, then time to sign up. We're only asking for a dollar a show, a cup of coffee a month. It's about the principle of, of appreciation and solidarity with our little meerkat group um, more than the money. So... We just get a good feeling when people um, say, yep, that's good enough for me. I'm, I'm putting in a dollar a show. So there you go. That's it. We'll leave you alone for the begging uh, for a few weeks and hopefully you'll come through. But 12th man, time for some poetry. <laughs> oh, would you care for some? Yeah, I came across a nice little poem called The Man from Point Piper uh, by someone called Real Dean Cool. Does that sound like a real person's name to you? It sounds Probably fake. not, yes. But anyway, I thought it was quite cool. Shall I read a couple of stanzas? Sure, yep. There was movement in the nation, for the word had passed around, that the dolt whom all regret was led astray, and had joined the wild right-wingers. He was worth a million pound. So all the banks had gathered to the fray. All the rich and pompous toadies from the networks heard the call and mustered his supporters with their lies. For progressive Malcolm Turnbull was the greatest myth of all and the voters drank the Kool-Aid every time. (laughs) That's good, isn't it? That is good. How about another, just another stanza? One more, yep. And so it goes, the leaking and the lying from the right... A self-destructive force like few have seen, for power matters little to those spoiling for a fight. And nothing gets their blood up like the Greens. So as Malcolm tried to swing his party toward a climate goal, he must have known how Abbott would react to try to shift this nation's heart from its kinship with black coal cannot be done while the decks are so stacked. Mm. Like it? I, I like the first one in oh, particular. Okay. I thought the rhythm was quite good mm. and the words, it, it fell away a bit in the second mm. one. Yeah. Yeah. But no, good. It was good. 
I think we should do like poetry of, more, like, yeah, more regularly. I like a bit of I like a bit of bush poetry actually. Yeah. Uh, one of my favourite ones was the Geebung Polo Club. Oh, have you ever heard it? No. It was somewhere up the country in a land of rock and scrub where they formed an institution called the Geebung Polo Club. They were tough and wiry natives from the rugged mountainside and the horse was never saddled that the G-bungs couldn't ride. That's it. I, I don't know the rest, but, you know, yeah. I've heard that. No. Yeah, it's, it's a good one, yeah. Um, yeah, bush poetry. You don't hear much of it anymore. No. We're showing our age. Can we, <laughs> can we start a, a bush poetry revival on this podcast, do you think? Yeah, maybe. Um, it's worth a shot. Yeah, Maybe. The last time we had any poetry was uh, was Yates with the. Uh, um, he died a long Ke- time ago. Was it Yates? Um, um, from t- from right wing Tony, uh, the best lack all conviction, <laughs> while the worst are full of passionate intensity. So, you're looking at me strangely, but yeah, we have done a little bit of poetry, dear listener, over the time. So. Anyway, uh, what do we got left on the list here? Uh, one that I, one idea I wanted to get out as well was just looking at my um, subscription to the Australian, and, <laughs> and um, you're still smarting. Over I that. am still smarting over that. Yeah. So, um, so I looked at one of these editorials the other day, and it said. Um, so it is an editorial, so I guess you can, you've can. you got you know, more options to prattle on. But it said, After all, those in Canberra intent on wishing away a reduction in the company tax rate despite overwhelming economic evidence of its benefits and concerted action to lower company tax rates in other countries must eventually answer for their vote. Oh, for God's sake. Those who oppose the measure will have to explain why they deliberately chose to weigh down our country and our workers with uncompetitive lead in the nation's saddlebags. If our politicians squid a chance this week to extend the small business tax cut to all companies, they will be voting to impose a huge tax cliff on small businesses. OECD analysis shows lower company taxes have led to stronger growth. Productivity improvements drive wages growth. Hospitals or tax cuts for big business makes a catchy slogan, but it offers a phony choice. Our economic growth can give us the capacity to sustain our world-class healthcare system. We need a plan to make our country more competitive, a plan to lock in the jobs of the future and a plan to grow the economy, drive wages growth and investment. Just complete... BS. Where is the evidence that just, reducing company taxes leads to it either higher productivity <clears throat> or wage growth? It doesn't. You know, it's been shown time and time again that it doesn't work. And this is just, you know, this is from the Australian. This is, you know, Rupert Murdoch's play sheet where they're just out there arguing for it. It makes no sense whatsoever. But the truth no longer matters. You just say whatever you like and you get away with it. It just, it no longer matters. And did you guys hear the interview with Rudy Giuliani? I did. That was a slow motion train wreck. So he was being, (laughs) so Rudy Giuliani is now the, you know, sort of legal advisor for Trump. And on the Russia investigation, yeah. Giuliani years ago used to be okay. Like Wasn't when he, he was mayor of, of New York, York? yeah, and, and now he, he comes was, across as a complete moron. He was actually touted as a possible 
Republican president candidate, candidate, presidential candidate after yeah. the way he handled the nine eleven crisis. Yeah, um, and he's being interviewed on a on a TV show, and this is this is what he had to say. Have a listen to this. So I, what I have to tell you is, look, I'm not going to be rushed into having him testify so that he gets trapped into perjury. And when you tell me that, you know, he should testify because he's going to tell the truth and he shouldn't worry. Well, that's so silly because it's somebody's version of the truth, not the truth. He didn't have a, a conversation. Truth is about, truth. I, I don't mean to go like. I, no, I it isn't truth. Truth isn't truth. The president of the United States says I didn't. Truth isn't I, truth. Mr. Mayor, do you realize what I, I, I no, I, no, no. This is going to become a bad don't, don't meme. Do, don't, do, don't do this to me. Don't do truth uh, isn't truth Trump, to me. Tribute truth isn't truth. No. This when is the I state we're in. When I first saw that, I had to watch it a second time just to make sure he was actually saying what I thought he said. You know, it's this is a guy that's clearly been painted into a corner. He can't let his man down. But he doesn't want him to get up there and commit perjury because we all know that's the only way he's going to get out of this is to perjure himself. But but it's just Orwellian, this this idea that truth is Isn't such truth. a malleable yeah. thing and people know, no longer know where the truth lies. And I, I recently was rereading um, 1984 and... And the crux of that is that the proletariat have no idea what's going on and they don't really care. But the party members have to keep um, rewriting history and when events change and they're no longer fighting East Asia but they're fighting Eurasia, then they grab all the books and, and delete all the references and change them over and, and bingo. Like the, the Chinese the Communist change. Party does. Yes, and we're rapidly approaching that sort of world mm. where people really don't know where the truth lies anymore Indeed. because... People are such blatant liars that the truth has no value anymore. And if you don't know what the truth is, you're really stuck. And we're heading in that direction. And with guys like that who have no regard for it, it's a dangerous world. Yeah. We're leaving the It future. is very dangerous, isn't it? Mm. Fortunate. All the more reason why we, good, we need good secular education systems. Yes, so that at least people develop the inquiry skills to look for the truth for themselves. Or at least good podcasts like this one that people can listen to every week, which is a podcast episode we're probably going to wrap up, I'd say, unless you guys have got anything in particular you want to run through. What about the, um, the fam- famous letter in France uh, by, signed by quite a lot of women against the Me Too movement? What did you make of that? Ah, that was a, something I read about today. That was um, quite interesting because it was... I thought it was interesting too because they make the point that the way the Me Too movement has spiralled sort of into this huge force to be reckoned with, they say basically to the, the, the Me Too movement, a, 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 a touch the knee is equated with, um, you know, complete rape. You know, there's no nuance, there's no differentiation, no grading. And uh, it's a bit like this woman saying she was like a punch in the face, being refused a job or, you know, not being hired. Not familiar with it, not familiar. So they're saying that 
the so-called allegations of rape are not really rape. They're just more, no, no. Well, the, no. These, these French women are saying they don't want the American style sexual prudery, ah, which is okay. how they yes, are yes. reading the Me Too movement, ah. as an attack on sexual freedom, because right. the French apparently consider themselves to be sexually quite equal and quite liberated in terms mm. of male and female. Uh, relative status. Yes. And they're saying this is a form of, uh, a new form of American sexual prudery. Right. Which is sweeping, sweeping the world and making it hard for men just to act naturally, act, you know, without inhibition in a workplace. And, and, and not to the point where they go out, you know, attacking and molesting women, but just to feel relaxed enough to, to make a compliment to a woman or to, or to even ask her out for a, a drink or a date or whatever, you know, without feeling that they're going to be accused of committing a sexual crime. So it's an importation of an American cultural norm. That's, that's apparently how they're seeing it. Mm. And the French are very proud of their, you know, their, their French traditions and they, mm. they don't want to be more American and they certainly don't want to embrace this... Me Too movement, at least mm. quite a lot. Quite a lot of French women don't want to embrace it. Mm. That uh, makes sense. Although some of them apparently do. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Very interesting. Mm. Mm. All right, gentlemen. Well, we'll sign off on that uh, on that note. Thank you, Smiley Al, for our our new David Attenborough <laughs> um, <laughs> intro and it's beautifully and done. Pat- and Patreon call out. Thanks, mate. Really good work. Uh, if ever anyone needs a voice over guy, <laughs> we've got the man for you. So exactly. We'll yeah. put you in touch with, with Smiley Al. So thanks, mate, for that. Much appreciated. And um, oh, look, keep an eye on Facebook. I think what we'd like to do, we need a, a sort of a, a call-in session. And I, we're going to set up something either through Facebook, I think, maybe for our next episode, which could be on a Wednesday night, where we can sort of take questions at some point during the podcast and answer things. So uh, maybe patrons can actually um, dial in and uh, non-patrons can just pose questions on the Facebook page. But it might be interesting to sort of do a a live episode and, and try and take some feedback on the fly as we go. So... Keep an eye on the Facebook page. If you don't like it already, (laughs) uh, make sure you do. Um, And, yeah, we'll we'll knock our heads together and and attempt something like that. So if you've got any questions, ideas, thought experiments, uh, issues you wanted to discuss, then then, um, jot them down and... And think about that on now. You guys right for Wednesday next week? Yeah, Have we got no problem. anything? I think I'm free for Wednesday, so Wednesday next week. Stay tuned. Look at the Facebook page, and there'll be more details. So until then, bye for now. Thanks very much for listening. See Cheers. Ya. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and 
search for Ironvis Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.